0: I think I started reflecting on all the roles that I play father, CEO, husband, blah, 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 blah. And those roles are always intention to some extent, right? I can spend more time with my kids if I spent less time at work, yada, yada, yada. I started realizing that I really didn't need a lot more financially to be able to provide for my family. That becomes a very convenient reason to work. Oh, I have to supply for my family. Once that was taken away, I kind of had to deal with the why are you still working question? What are you trying to accomplish? Once you strip that away, of having to work to sustain your lifestyle, you then are like, but I still want to do the work. And then you have to unpack that. But then you have to go, well, if I'm not working anymore just to make as much money as possible to secure my family and our future, do I not want to grow anymore? Do I want to still grow? And it was the whole process of asking myself these questions and what would life look like if I kept growing? And then do I like that life? Because I don't need any of the money from the growth. Would I be disappointed in myself if I kind of grew the business, but then didn't spend the time I wanted to with my kids and blah, 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 blah. So that was kind of all the mumbo jumbo going on in my head.
1: Welcome! I am your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. After the past two anthology episodes, we're now back to a live guest. And those of you who have listened to the podcast in November have already heard a lot about him. The first time I heard of Will Reynolds was at a marketing conference about 10 years ago. For context, that was when natural search and search engine optimization were exploding as key tactics in the marketing world. Will gave a presentation on an SEO topic and he blew my mind. I remember thinking this guy is operating on a completely different level. He had a unique ability to combine the way he saw data with very complex technical steps and then put it all together as to how you should approach content for your site. And he made it sound all incredibly simple and perfectly logical. It is no surprise that in about 20 years he built Sear Interactive, an agency that started in his own bedroom and now employs over 200 people. Over the years I followed Will through the industry and on LinkedIn. And that's where a couple of years ago I learned of something that made me realize that Will is not only an extraordinary marketer, he's also an incredibly thoughtful and empathetic leader. Will started a conversation asking the question, as a financially successful founder, how much is enough? And what do we do once we reach that point? He didn't just ask the question. He started answering it for himself in a very public way. As he was taking steps to implement his vision with Sears Interactive, he would document it and share his ideas with everyone on LinkedIn. I knew immediately he is one of the archetypes of the leaders I want to feature on my podcast. And I am incredibly excited and thankful to have him as my guest today. Okay, Will, great to have you on the podcast. Let's start out by introducing you to our listeners. Tell us you know, what you're doing now
0: and how you got here, in your own words. Oh, geez, I suck at that. So I am the founder of a digital marketing agency that have offices in Philly and San Diego because we're paying for them. So I might as well say we have them, but you know, we're mostly remote these days. Founded the company August of 2002, 2002, I founded the company. So this is our 20th year in existence. And, you know, I think uh, I'm proud of the fact that we have thrived, not just survived. I think a lot of people were congratulating me on being around for 20 years. And I'm like, well, you know, a lot of people can build a company that's around for 20 years and not doing much. But the fact that we were able to grow the way that we've been able to grow and kind of do things our way is what I'm probably most proud of, is we followed kind of our own playbook, so to speak.
1: It is pretty obvious from some of the things that you have shared and the decision you've made even recently that now you are a pretty intentional leader and I think you're pretty clear about the values that guide you and how you want to run the business. I'm interested in knowing how was the process for you to start to define those values and what were maybe some of the key moments when you started to realize how you wanted to lead and run your business?
0: That's a good question. I think I started reflecting on all the roles that I play father, CEO, husband, blah, 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 blah. And those roles are always intention to some extent, right? I can spend more time with my kids if I spent less time at work, yada, yada, yada. And I started realizing that um, I really didn't need a lot more financially to be able to provide for my family and secure for my family. So once it's interesting, like once that becomes a very convenient reason to work, well, I have to supply for my family. And once that was taken away, I kind of had to deal with the why are you still working question? What are you trying to accomplish? And I think that once you strip that away of having to work to sustain your lifestyle, you then are like, but I still want to do the work. And then you have to unpack that, but then you have to go, well, if I'm not working anymore just to make as much money as possible to secure my family and our future, then like, do I not want to grow anymore? Do I want to still grow? And it was the whole process of asking myself these questions. And, what would life look like if I kept growing? And then do I like that life? Because I don't need any of the money from the growth. So would I be disappointed in myself if I kind of grew the business, but then didn't spend the time I wanted to with my kids and blah, 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 blah. blah. So that was kind of all the mumbo jumbo going on in my head. And
1: how does that translate into how you are leading the company and the business?
0: I think I'm going through a bit of a a metamorphosis, so to speak, that I haven't really talked about at all, not even in my team yet. But it's like, we've grown so consistently for so long that we are now running into a type of competitor that is well-funded. I mean, we work with some of the largest companies on the planet. I'd say like every big company that you know, like if you were to take the top 10 companies in the in the world, we probably have worked with seven of them at some point in the last five, seven years. So it's like, we got up there, but we got up there in a way that now we're com- we're taking we're we're competing with people that are like pros at this, right? And their exec teams have been like, I've been at four agencies before I came to this agency over my 25 year career, right? Whereas I've only been in one place for the last 20 years. And then Crystal, who run who really runs the business, she's really like our CEO. She has been with me for 14 years. And then before that, she worked for like two or three years in a really small agency. So what happens is we've been able to do things our way and grow and kind of snub our nose at the industry and the way it's supposed to be done. But then at 200 employees, we started hitting some headwinds where we're like, ooh, like maybe some of those people might know something that we don't know that we need to tap into and learn from. So it's just an interesting time for me to be like, ooh, all the things that got us to this point, things that got me on this podcast may not get me to the next level. To accomplish the things that i want to do which is i want to create more wealth for my team and an ability to have a larger impact on the communities in which we live to the tune of you know i think over the next 10 years you know or so seer could have a 15 million dollar impact on our community so like that's my reason for growing now you've started operationalizing some
1: of this things in terms of you know giving things back for your team. And it's been a somewhat public journey because you're regularly publishing your thoughts on LinkedIn and in some of your blogs. What are some of the key decisions that have worked and in, in you know in, in the translating your vision of providing for your team?
0: The things that worked at times, I still feel like I think they might have worked for us at one point. I'm not sure if they're going to work for us in the future. It's really an interesting time that we're chatting. Because what I'll tell you is we had a really good year two years ago. And I mean, I ended up giving out, you know, three million ish in like, hey guys, I don't want it. Like I told you I'm here to help, you know, you guys secure your family's futures and whatnot. And I had my highest turnover the same year that I gave out the most money I've ever given out to the team. And it's like, Ooh, I thought that if I was just super transparent It was really like that. like Because what do people hate most about CEOs? We were talking about this before we got on. Oh, they're greedy, right? So when you, as a CEO, hear that over and over again, you can sometimes believe that, well, if I'm not like that, people will really want to ride it out with me, stick it out with me, help me to grow. And I found that that wasn't the case. I think there's more to why people want to work with you than just like, my CEO is a good person. And it might sound naive to some people, but it got us really far. Like... It got us really far, just like on that premise. But then it was a major punch in the face when I'm like, ooh, isn't that interesting? The year that I gave the most of my profit to the team was the same year I had my highest turnover ever. And I was like, ooh, there's got to be something else there.
1: Can I just say something? And I don't know the details at all, but I've, I've seen you talk at several conferences. I know the intellectual level of the work that you do and how you think about it. And I have to imagine that, I'm not the only one in the industry who sees it. So I'm wondering how many of the people that left are people who benefited for being in an environment where people obviously know that somebody who works at Sears Interactive. Oh. Yeah. Is a high quality person. Yeah. And that creates maybe opportunities for them to do even more. So some of it may not be related directly to the money that you gave out, but to the fact that in such a successful year, when everybody's seeing what they're doing, and especially in a year like, I mean, two years ago, you know, people were quitting their jobs left and right, and there was a lot of demand for people.
0: You know, I don't make excuses for myself. So when people are leaving my company, so we had also historically ridiculously low turnover. That's another thing that I think I should share, just as like anybody who's ever thinking of running a business is, um, I don't really give a shit about benchmarks. I'm like, I'm gonna make my own benchmarks, you know. I'm gonna make my own company benchmarks and what's gonna make me proud at the end of the day. It's not like, oh, let me see how high turnover is for other companies and ooh, am I lower or better? So I've never looked into what average agency turnover is until an employee asked us that at an all hands, and we had no answer because I've never looked into it. And when we looked into it, the average for an agency is like 30%. And we had consistently been at 18 to 20 for like 15 years. So what happens is over time. You start building all this institutional knowledge because people are staying, but you don't realize that it's just how things go. And then, when we had a higher turnover year, that resulted in a lot of people moving on, which then resulted in like, wait, our processes are broken. So we weren't really built to scale. And, you know, when you are compounding. Six, seven, eight, nine, 10 years in a row of 18 to 20% turnover when the industry average is 30, you don't realize that's an asset until it's gone. And in terms of, you know, helping our people to grow, it's like I went to school to be a teacher. So I'm very about helping our people to grow and then to move on. I don't care if they grow inside of SEER or outside of SEER, that's fine. Literally, just yesterday, Kate Hatch, one of our folks that left uh, during the pandemic, somebody came up to me in Vegas where I was um, this morning and yesterday. And he's like, yo, I'm a consultant in the banking space. And one of our clients hired one of your folks and he was like, she is fucking really good, man. And that makes me feel good, I guess. But like, I'm, I'm trying to, I always will care about helping people to grow in my company always, but I'm trying to have an impact on my community and for my coworkers. That is my number one reason for being. And uh, when people leave, it makes that in some ways harder. You
1: brought up a couple of points that are fascinating to me because you started out essentially by yourself, grew the company to 200 people. And you mentioned right now that you're, you're feeling that you're now, you've now hit sort of like a step of growth where the world around you or the game is somewhat changing. What were some of the other like, moments of scaling where like, oh, now things are different from before? And how did you navigate those?
0: It's always about finding the right people to help you get through it. Like it's never me. It's just me finding the right person, getting out of their fucking way. So one of the things was, you know, I started this business working with barbershops and hair salons, and I was happy to do that work. You know, I never really attached my self-worth to how big the brands that I worked with were. I did you know, I remember being proud the first time my mom knew one of the companies that we were working with because all the businesses I worked with were so small. But outside of that, I care more about my revenue and my profit and what ends up in the bank than I do, like, you can have a great big, big name client that, You lose money on. So, you know, that's not the game of business. The game of business is you got to make money, not have big clients. So, one of the stepping stones along the way in terms of scale that we ran into is when we started getting bigger clients, they were articulating to us that, like, our first clients really came to us. um, Our first bigger clients came to us because we were the geeks, right? And they were like in house, they had formerly been in agencies, and they're like, I don't want not to bash anybody, but it's like, they're like, I don't want like razorfish. I don't want these like overly polished agencies, you know, Digitas, Like you said, you're at Digitas. Like there was a perception of people that came up and I'm one of those people, right. That came up gritty in forums and trying to learn search that you're like, Ooh, those places, those people were never in those forums from what we knew. Right. Like they were always just like gritty, smaller groups. So clients that we got were people that were like, Ooh, I'm now at, let's just use Nike. Right. I'm at Nike now. But I grew up as like a dirt under the fingernail style SEO. So when I go out in the marketplace, I'm looking for like a SEO gadget, a distilled, an iPoll rank, a portent, uh, a seer, a distilled, right? They were looking for that kind of like grittier, like search type company. But then the problem that we learned is those bigger companies were used to being serviced differently. And we were like, oh, shit, that's why these Digitas and these people, they know how to service those clients. There's a whole layer where the client will say they want the geeks and they want to be right there with the people doing all the cool shit until their boss asks them, what's the ROI? And at that moment, they want somebody who can talk business to their client, not hey, there's new canonical thing I'm testing, right? So like that was a major learning point. And it was a fortunate thing because once we figured that out, it was one of those like step functions for us where we really started growing a ton again, but we had to insert in a customer and client management layer that I fought against early on because I'm like, man, our clients want to work with the geeks, man. Like that's what makes us us. And it was like, yeah, up until we got to start talking about ROI and revenue and projections, that's when they wanted people that were there to manage the relationship.
1: So I completely agree with what you're saying. And, and you know, some of it is at a certain scale, customer management, client management is actually a skill set as much as it's a technical skill set too. And people fail to
0: recognize that. 100%.
1: And it goes beyond just the ROI, et cetera. It goes to the figuring out in a large company that your client may seem to have the authority to do something, but really, before they get to do it, they need to convince someone else. And you need to say, how am I going to make my client win internally? How am I going to sequence those conversations? Who are we sharing this first at the client so that we don't get shut down immediately? Like, What are the alliances that our client needs to build internally to be able to get permission to that, to be able to get additional budget to do that? That's a whole skill set. It is a
0: whole skill set. It is a, actually, is a completely separate skill set. And we underestimated that, tripped into it and got some big clients and luckily were able to keep them. But like, they're like, what do you mean you don't have a person like this? What do you mean you don't have like this kind of person? Here? What do you mean you don't have a POV? I remember they would say things to my team like, oh, we would like you to drop a POV on this. And the team was like, what's a POV? And you're like, oh shit, man. Wow. We're at a different level. And it's always interesting when you're in a room. And people assume you have something that you don't have. And they're like, wait, you don't have a POV on this. Like, how is that even possible as a, as a company at your level? And it's like, oh, we've come up to a new level where it's just an expectation that these things are going to happen. And uh, we don't have it. And we're Googling what you just asked for. So we got a lot of work to do.
1: That's fascinating for me because those transitions that you're talking about, they're not easy to make.
0: They're very difficult. I mean, we had to put in a whole layer of the business. We literally had to put in a whole layer on top of the business just to recognize. Because You know what I think, too? Humility is a liability as much as it can be an asset. And I think that we think that humility is an asset. But it can be – I'll give you an example of how one of my advisors showed me how it was a liability. So I went to school to be a teacher. My parents were lower class, lower middle class people. Like I would say I'm nobody special. Saying and thinking that actually caused me to burn out some of my earliest employees because at 22, my bosses gave me an opportunity in search, and I would run home, sit all day in forums, learn it all, figure it out, come back, do it, right? And I look at it, and I'm like, well, now I run this business. And the only reason why I'm here, because I'm not special, is because somebody gave me a shot. Somebody saw potential in me. So what was I doing when I started off running my business? giving young people massive opportunities just like was given to me. And when you underestimate the fact that you might actually have something special about you that enables you to take a bunch of different parts, piece them together and create value. And you're like, but if I just gave these same parts to anybody, I'm not special. I work hard, but I'm not special. So if I gave you the same parts that somebody gave me and I turned those parts into this business, you could easily do what I did. And that burns people out because they try to live up to that expectation and they can't. And it comes from your inability to recognize that just maybe you have some special skills and a special way of combining these ingredients that other people, when you give them the exact same ingredients, don't freaking make the, the dessert the same way. But if you just go to your whole company, oh, well, I'm nobody special. I don't. I didn't go to school for this. I don't know this. I don't know business. I don't know HTML. I was a teacher. Blah, 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 blah. You just start being like, so if somebody just gave you a chance, like somebody gave me a chance, you can do the exact same things I can do. And that actually stresses people out at times. That was another early learning around like 20, 30 people that I had to learn that lesson.
1: What you just crystallized is sort of the first really difficult transition that people make as they progress their career, which is going from be, being the expert that knows how to do to being the person who knows how to lead. And our first instinct as leaders is like, I'm going to treat everybody like I'd liked to be managed. And what happens to people who are really entrepreneurial and who are really good at getting things done is like, I loved it when people just let me be and I could just do it, you know? And they're like, here, just do it. And then there's that learning the process that you need. First of all, you need people that have different skills and different talents and that
0: they need to be managed differently. You know, you can't hustle your way out of every problem. And you can't learn your way and read a book out of every problem. And that was one of the areas, too, in our business growth, that this is another thing that people have told me is unique about me, but to me is just completely natural. So I'm in business because businesses are built to make money and grow and blah, 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 right? I'm not a nonprofit, even though I give a lot of my money to the nonprofit, I'm not a nonprofit. So it's like, if, if my goal is to make the business grow, then I have to be open to times where I'm in the way of that growth. And from what I understand from a bunch of my advisors, they're like, that's one of your superpowers, your ability to take something up to a certain point, recognize that you're no longer the right person to run it operationally, and then let somebody else run it and not be up their ass, right? And really let them run it, truly let them run it and take ownership. They're like, we haven't seen many folks like that. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why, not one of the reasons why, I think the reason why we are where we are is because of Crystal, not because of me. Because my approach is like, just work harder, beat everybody. And you start realizing that that doesn't work when you're trying to scale. Like, it just doesn't work because you can't find enough people who have that mentality. So then how do you build a business and continue to grow it when you can't expect everybody just to be like, well, just figure it out. And Crystal has really helped me to build a business that scales. Thank God.
1: So that's interesting that you're bringing up Crystal, because my next question was, Around this. So, one of the most difficult things for founders to do is to recognize that maybe they don't want to be the CEO and then finding the right CEO and then figuring out what it is that they really want to do and carving that role for themselves. What was that process like for you? And what were some of maybe the challenges in getting to that
0: point? The first thing was I did not like the advice of work on the business instead of in the business or whatever people say, you know, like, oh, you gotta work on the business, not in the business. And I didn't get joy working on the business. Like if you gave me a free 30 minutes, the last thing I wanted to do was look at margins and projections and spreadsheets and client profitability. I didn't wanna look at that. I wanted to build something that the world hadn't seen before. So that is great if you're like a two-person company but if people are relying on you to make sure their checks get paid, they need to have somebody in place to make sure the checks get paid, right? So because I've always been so open to the fact that like, I enjoy working on clients, I enjoy working on client problems. I, that's what I enjoy. I just ran to what I enjoyed. Um, in ter- people have asked me for a, a lot of times, like, how did you find Crystal? How did you put somebody in place? Yada, 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 yada. And I found Crystal on Craigslist. So this wasn't like one of these things where like I recruited her and all that stuff. It's like, no, like she came in, worked as a SEO account manager, then did paid, then led paid, then led SEO and paid, then led the whole business. But it was, I would say is you got to recognize when you have an employee that is different and wants to truly take ownership and can intuit what you might do. Like one of the things that's great about Crystal is she's seen me operate for 14 years. So she now can basically predict exactly how I'm going to be. So I don't need to be in leadership meetings anymore. I don't need to be in certain things. Um, and it's also about like understanding where you create value in your organization. And that's been something I've been recently going through. So I'm like, man, like I want to be in the place where I create the most value in the company. And when I open up a spreadsheet and I got to look at some freaking projections, it's like, all right, I don't have to sit here for three hours what does this column mean? How does that calculate it? What does this mean? But you give me a bunch of data, some search data, some billboard location data or something like that's my normal place. So the amount of things I can create off of that data in three hours is so different than what I would do if I was sitting there working on the business and trying to figure out all the spreadsheets and shit, you know, revenue solves all problems. That's what another one of my advisors said to me. So I think what I got lucky with is that we grew enough and grew fast enough and always were profitable to the mistakes that I were making were easily camouflaged with revenue throughout the, throughout the course of the business. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people that's like, look, like, yeah, great operators are important. I wouldn't have my business without one. Somebody's gotta sell something to somebody, right? Somebody's gotta put something in the marketplace that makes the market pay attention because somebody who can really operate a business needs a growing business to operate. And for me, it's always been about like, if you sell enough, you can probably get through some mistakes that might be fatal, if you weren't able to sell enough, right? Like if you got like that one big client you sold once, but you haven't been able to sell another big one like that and then they move on, it can tank you.
1: How long ago did Crystal take on as CEO and you carved out this role for yourself?
0: It's probably been, after she was with me probably for about six years, so it's probably been the last eight years or so, she's pretty much been the person to run the business.
1: I assume you were not 200 employees when she took over. So how are you thinking about your role and the overall management team now.
0: I mean, she was employee number eight. So that's really her call. I mean, she really does run the business, man. So she's the one building the leadership team around her. Um, what I ask her to do is put me in the position where I create the most value for the organization. I want to put a bunch of money into my coworkers and my community. Like that's why I want to grow and I want to grow. So um what role do I play that helps that to be most likely to happen? So yeah, she's the one that goes out and finds the leaders she wants. And she knows what's in my heart. So she always ends up picking great leaders. I mean, for a while, she she would pick all the people that I worked with because she was better at picking talent than I was, right? So like, you know, it'd be like, oh, Will needs a new assistant. Like, okay, let Crystal pick it. Don't let Will pick it because she's better at picking talent than I am.
1: That's funny. I want to talk about something that we were talking about before we started recording the episode, which is there's an interesting tension between wanting to build the right company with the right culture and having sort of impact, and then the idea of scale, right? That scale allows you to do more versus like being, you know, maybe being smaller and creating like a great little company. You started mentioning early in this conversation that, you know, you're at another inflection point. What are some of the things that you're considering and thinking about the next level of growth and whether
0: or not you want to go there? Oh, we're gonna go there. I wanna go there. One day it hit me that when you as a leader need to go into Google Sheets and Google Docs to find out things like who's on what project, profitability metrics, things of that nature, you're not ready to scale. At least for us, you know, that, that that kind of shit was cute until we got to about 150, 160 people. And then you started realizing there's like learning management tools. Like, and you have to take all your stuff and put it in a learning management tool, not the free wiki that comes with Google Sheets or Google Google Drive or whatever it is, Google Suite. And then you watch yourself. Like, this is where turnover is a good thing because all you and your team have been together so long, and so few people have come from the outside that you're like, oh, we're those scrappy people. We roll up the sleeves. We're going to build a custom thing in Google Sheets, and it's going to do this, and it's going to do that, and it's going to do this, right? And then it breaks, and now that person that built that thing has got to support that thing and they're like loaded up on clients and they just hustled through on a weekend or two to get that thing done. And it worked great for a year or two, but now we need to add features. And now it's like, well, why are we taking a person to have, you know what I'm saying? And Then you go out and someday somebody quits and you're like, oh my God, we can't support these things we built. And then somebody new comes in and is like, yo bro, like this whole company does all this stuff you guys built. Like, why didn't you guys just buy the software? You're obviously a big enough firm that you could have done that. And we have had a lot of that. We used to have a wiki. We're now using this company called Guru, which is just phenomenal in terms of like you can assign people to process. So here's one of the things that we also decided to do. We decided to get better at turnover because I think when the pandemic hit and we started having more turnover, we're like, oh, let's double down on culture. And one of my advisors said to me, he goes, okay, if you have eight executives all focusing on how can you be better for your team, mental health, this, this, that. So it's all culture, 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 culture. He goes... Who in the room is like, I'm going to work on getting better at turnover? And I was like, oh, shit, you're right. He's like, because there's probably some low-hanging fruit because you guys are so culture-driven. You've never thought of yourselves as a company that should really focus real time and effort on getting better at turnover. And I was like, oh, shit, bro. Oof. I'm like, nobody in the room is thinking about how to get better at turnover. And I think that led to us being like, oh, well, instead of us having this like wiki or whatever we had to train people off of, let's look at these tools. And one of the tools we looked at was this company called Guru and they'll let you like assign things, Dino. So it'll be like, oh, Dino is the first line of defense on this process and you automatically get pinged every month to make sure that everything in there is accurate. So when we onboard somebody, it's never like, yo, there's things in here that are old. And now I got to go into Slack and ask people. And then the second person that used to own it, they just put in there two weeks. So now how am I supposed to get my job done? I can't be successful at your company because everywhere I go to do all the cool stuff you do is so poorly documented that I am not being successful for my clients. I feel bad. Right? So we've started to look for tools like that and, and resource management with Rike and other kinds of tools that are really starting to help us be like, oh, this is what happens when you go from 200 to 1,000. You need software platforms that are built for that because otherwise you're in a Google Sheet. And we know how that can turn out. It's great because it's cheap and efficient when you're smaller, but we've held on to those kind of scrappy tools for too long. And we started seeing it have an effect on our team's ability to feel successful with their work. That's great. And so something else that I think
1: changes as you go from even from like 10 to 100 is, I'm assuming in the early phases, you were hiring mostly more junior people, and then they were trained and brought into the culture. And then at some point now, you may need to bring in mid-level people or even senior people as you're scaling at a certain pace. How do you maintain? How did you maintain the company through that? And what are you putting in place for that? And what are some of the challenges?
0: So the good part is is that I never felt pressure to grow. I want to grow, but I fucking own the whole business. There's nobody telling me I got to grow. So whenever we get a bit over our skis in terms of growth, I can just be like, slow it down. Let's figure this stuff out. Do what's right by our team. You can't try to put in all the new tooling for your team at the same time, try to like break your sales records. Right? Or you can, but you're going to be putting a lot of stress on, on, on the organization. So I think the first thing is, is that I don't have pressure to grow, which enables me to kind of slow things down a bit. So then we can infuse in and recognize we're at an inflection point. We need to probably do things differently, and that's going to slow us down a bit. But then the investment, we hope, pays off with future growth. Um, So that's one of the things. The good part about us being kind of out there about our culture. So this is interesting. This is really fucking interesting. At least to me, it's been surprising. When you're really out there with your culture, there are people that have been watching you two years, three years, eight years, 10 years, right? And We all go through points in our career. I think not all of us, because I really didn't go through this, but a lot of us do, where the real goal is like, how can I make the most money, right? You fall into that trap. Like, how can I make the most money? I don't want to be ripped off for my labor hour. Like I want to, you know, whatever. And I think that some of these eight and 10 year people have felt a pull because they've seen us be real for 10 years. They're like, oh shit. Like You said this thing 10 years ago and you're still that company 10 years later. So like, there's an ethos there that I always was kind of attracted to. But when I first saw you, I was in the mentality of how can I make you know 150 a year or I got to make 200 a year, whatever those numbers are, right? But then people spend eight, nine, 10 years being like, I did that and I'm not really all that happy, but I'm more secure. I might be willing to even come down a bit to work at a company that I've been watching for 10 years and see how the sausage is made from the inside. So we've had a couple of people come to us, we're like, we can't afford you. They're like, I always wanted to see how you guys did it. I used to compete with you, this, that, whatever. I always want to see how you guys did it. Or they're like, you know, there's a time in your career where you go somewhere for money and there's a time where you go somewhere in your career to learn. And there's a time in your career where you go somewhere to be like, I want to trust the people I work with. And these are seasons and they change because, you know, when you get one, you get used to it and then you want the other thing. But what we find is that some of these senior execs have not been that hard to find because they've been watching us for a while And they've been like, yeah, I've seen you all. I know who you are. Like, I know you guys. But you either never had a role open at the senior level. Because with with having low turnover, the other thing is people are like, I never saw roles getting open because we kept just filling them internally with our own people, which also led to a little bit of groupthink. You know, we weren't getting new solutions. And I'll tell you, man, like, it's funny. I sit back as an old guy now and look at the younger me and go like, man, I used to brag about how low my turnover was early, early days. Like, oh, Sears has lost an employee in three years or some bullshit like that. And now when I see people do it, I'm like, yeah, I, I probably would even be, I can't say better off, but like, I now recognize and fully value that, especially if you're going fast and going through inflection points, bringing in some people that have been there, done that, it'll save your whole company from just banging your head on brick walls you don't need to.
1: Yeah, I think it's fundamental because you start a company, you're like, going to start with the people that are like me. I'm going to start with the people that work like me, that think like me. And then there's a point that you really need to start bringing in different perspectives. So that is absolutely true. Quick question. You mentioned you own the whole company, but when you started posting around how you wanted to share, hopefully I'm restating this correctly. I remember saying, I've made enough for myself from now on, everything is about my community and my employees, there is a practicality there, I think, for people who are interested in that, which is, you know, the upside is in the equity, but also the control of the companies in the equity. And there's a certain amount of control that people want to retain where it's spreading the wealth. So for somebody who would be going through something similar and were to start thinking practically, what what are some of the key challenges and some of the key decisions that maybe you have made to start getting further down that path? from a really corporate and governance
0: standpoint. So I don't know much about this stuff, but I did have to implement my first phantom equity. So I implemented a phantom equity program. A couple things about this. So I implemented it years ago. And because I've gone through two or three times where I've reviewed the value of the company. So when you do that, the people that have shares are like, you can kind of tell me, oh, here's what the company's valued. I was talking to private equity company A or B, knocked on our door, sounded cool, but I decided not to. And then you do that once. And this, this is one of the problems with phantom equity. Then you do it a second time. And then you go, I don't think I want to sell the business. And then your team has been with you for a while. They're like, this thing ain't worth nothing if you don't eventually sell the business. And, and because I like my job and I don't have any desire to sell in the short term, you know, you're know, you like, uh, damn, but I don't want my team thinking I'm pulling one over on them and using this as this carrot that they're never going to get. Like, that's what I was afraid of. So then I turned my phantom equity into equity that actually paid people out. One of the saddest things is the business has grown so much and has such a high worth now that I couldn't even give equity away because the taxable events for my leadership team were so high, they couldn't have afforded the taxes on the value of the business if I gave them the equivalent. So then what I decided to do was to say, all right, um, I'm just going to start paying out profits based on what your percentage is as if you were a a shareholder. So in that way, you don't feel like I am dangling something out that i never have an intention on providing for you because the thing that's good and bad about me loving my job is your leaders and people with this equity start being like was there anything really there for me because if you never sell what does that mean the beauty of a phantom equity program is i have all the voting shares basically so i own the business 100 but there is a contract in place that says if there were ever a change in control then I dole out based on your percentages. And that knocks me down to like 52%. So in the case of a sale, I own 52% of the business. But in terms of decision-making, taxation, all that stuff, I own 100% of the business. So that's where those two things might've been a little bit conflated. And now we just have a system that scales in terms of if you own shares, here's your percentage, here's how much profit we have, if you make the profits go up, you get more, profits stay flat because we invest in tools and whatnot, which is what we're doing now. We're taking like a, let's take our profits and reinvest in the business. And I think everybody hears that. It's like, yay, we're getting the tools. We need to be successful. And then they look at their check and they're like, what the fuck happened to my check? And it's like, right, we're taking the profits and reinvesting. That's what I've done years and years and years, but nobody else felt that but me. Right. So now we feel that as a group and I can call some people to feel some kind of way sometimes, you know.
1: <laughs> that, you know that's the challenge. I want to talk about the other side of your giving back, which is the community. You have a pretty broad approach in terms of how you think about giving back and how you enable your employees to give back and participate in the community. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, about where some like the key decisions that you made as you were structuring the way that you give back to the community?
0: Sure. So like there's a theme here. Everything that I've ever structured failed at scale, but people knew it was in my heart. So, you know, I started the business in large because I couldn't volunteer at a hospital that I was working at, playing with sick kids um, as much as I wanted to. That was like the one of the real catalysts for me to start a business. And I was so adamant about it that like, my first 30 employees, your offer letter required you to have to volunteer to accept your offer. Because I was like, I don't wanna work with people who don't want to try to make the communities in which they live better. Just, I don't need to grow, right? If those are the people that I gotta work with, then I don't need to grow, right? But I found out that was illegal, so you can't make people volunteer so the lawyers as we got bigger we started getting lawyers they're like you can't do this like you you know you can't do this right so we don't make people do it like that anymore but my point there though is like that's obviously in the fucking ethos of the company like when your founder is like oh i volunteer 10 hours a month and i need you to volunteer at least 3 hours a month in order to accept your job then it's just in the ethos of the company right so then there's it's not like i'm trying to get people to do anything people either think that's fucking weird and they don't come or they're like I kind of like the sounds of that and they do. And they go, you know, part of what I'm gonna see is the value of being at Sear is I'm gonna be challenged to be a better human. It's not just gonna be how can I work my way up and get my promotion. The company's also like, how many hours have you put in this year? Why is this division not putting in as many hours in that division? Hey, maybe we can help them, right? So that is it's in our heart. But then what I started realizing is as the company grew, it went from a bunch of us are gonna get together and volunteer to like, wait. Nobody owns that. If that's going to be a pillar of our company, that we are going to be a pillar within our community, then it needs to be owned. And we had no ownership because everything was volunteer. Volunteering was volunteering, right? So it was like, oh, like I'm going to volunteer to get a group together. And somebody else would volunteer to get a group together. And that's a surefire way to wake up one day and be like, How are we not living out the values that we had started off on 20 years ago today? And It's like not because people are bad people, not because people don't want to do the work and put in time to volunteer. It's that no one's making it easy for them to put good into the world. Right. So… A year ago, I hired a full-time person who all her job is to do is to vet organizations, find ways to get our teams together, to put good out in the world. And I think we're gonna like triple our volunteer hours from the previous year by putting a focused individual on it who has a background in this is another example of hiring from the outside. So I had people internally that were like, oh, I would love to run our volunteer program and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, uh-uh. I'm going outside. I wanna go with somebody who has worked for 10 or 15 years in getting people to volunteer in their communities. And that's all they've done. And I found somebody. And again, this is one of those people that sits on the sidelines, sits on the sidelines, and then you put up a job and they're like, I've been looking at you for years. I know you. When you're ready to hire for this role, I'll be ready to apply. That kind of thing. And now we've got Joanna Bowen and she just runs the whole the whole program. So now we have certain software in place that makes it easier for people to track their hours, which lets us understand our total value, um, makes it easier for us to do donations and matches, whereas before it was like, put it in the sheet and then we'll do it every quarter and we'll do this and that. And now it's like, there's, dude, there's tools for this, right? But when somebody's done something their whole lives, it's so much easier for them to bring in those kind of processes and whatnot. And I'm just really proud that Seer made the investment in a person to help make it easier for our team members to put good into the world because we knew that was one of the reasons why they were here. But it's just sometimes hard when you got all the other stuff going on to realize that you've got the time, but somebody's got to help you to make the time. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Before we switch on to the personal side,
1: best place for people to find you are the seerinteractive.com.
0: Just find me on Twitter, LinkedIn. I try to stay off social. It's really sad. You know, I grew up on bulletin boards, dial-up, prodigy, chat rooms, AOL, IRC, you know, so I grew up on those things. I loved chat boards and they were not algorithmic. You know, you you subscribe to threads and rooms that you thought were interesting. And today, all these things on our phones, you know, they are algorithmic. So they see what you like, what you don't like. They keep showing you more of this shit and then you, you end up hooked. You know, I even got a phone that folds because of the friction. I want friction. And, I, you know, opening this is harder, right? It's harder than just opening. If you have a regular phone, it's like, it's always on. You can see it on your screen. Oh, somebody sent me a picture. I can see it on this phone. I can't. So I am a ah nice we have the same phone for the people who are listening
1: we're showing each other phones
0: (laughs) but i like the friction right i like the friction of a phone that folds because i'm just constantly struggling with like not being on social that much and i'm not on it that much but um i have real concerns about social media and i see how You know, I saw behaviors in myself that just made me be like, eh, you know, like, oh, why is it when I post something, you know, on Instagram or whatever, I like log in so much more afterwards to see who liked it. And then I was like, well, who are the people that liked it? I'm like, I don't know any of these fucking people. So it's interesting that my brain is like, oh, log back in, log back in, because you posted something. And then you're like trying to get more people to like it and engage with it. But then you don't know any of these fucking people, right? But yet the person you know, your kid, is getting like half of your attention because you're opening your phone every two seconds, trying to see who liked your post. And you're like, eh? the person that knows me best whose life I'm responsible for shaping is getting less of my time than somebody who I don't even know who they are. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. So the other thing that I want to talk about, I think this episode is going to go live after this has happened, but within the next couple of days, you're spending a night in the street, literally. So why don't you take a couple of minutes to talk about why you're supporting the Covenant House in Philadelphia and these things that you've been doing every year now for several years.
0: Yes, yeah, so for the last 12 years, I've slept outside in some kind of parking lot somewhere in Philadelphia, either at the shelter where the youth are or at this church that we're, no, we're doing it at now. We sleep in their parking lot. And I don't know, man, you know, like one of the selfish reasons why I volunteer is because it helps me to keep my life in check. You know, when I spend time... With the Covenant House, I'm now a board member, and you hear what kids are going through at 18, 19, 20 years old, and you reflect on what you were going through at 18, 19, or 20. At least for me, it was like part A, you know, it was like, you know, chasing girls and fraternity life and all that crazy stuff. And then you hear a kid be like, yeah, I got thrown out of my house when I was 19 because I was gay or because my parents didn't agree with this or that, my lifestyle. And that's just like, you know, it makes it so much easier when I get into work to not get overwhelmed by work. Because you're like, wait, this is what other people are going through. One of the things I think is for us to become more empathetic humans, we need to spend more time with people that are going through stuff. Because when you do that, and then you get that really tough client call, you can kind of put it in a different type of box. But without that other perspective, that can become a really big thing. That can become really dramatic, right? Like, oh, I got this client, I got this thing, and it's so hard, and it's so tough. But for me, it's the volunteerism that has always helped me to keep my life in check. And the big place that I put my time into is with the Covenant House. And my big fundraiser every year is the sleep out, which in two days, I'll be um, sleeping outside. And uh, it's a cold week this week in Philly. So it'll be down to like 28, 29 that night, which is brutal to be sitting in like a... A box with a freaking sleeping bag overnight, but that's what we do to just show solidarity with the youth in the shelter and show them that there are people out there that care about them.
1: And just so for everybody, the Covenant House focuses on helping homeless youth, which is a, as you've mentioned earlier, an underserved population within the homeless community.
0: It is. Um, it's a really, it's a really underserved group because if you think about it, you know our country has to have a cutoff for people. Oh, at 18 years old, you're an adult, but I don't think any of us matured. Instantly on our 18th birthday, the same issues we had at 17 years and 360 days, we're probably still there at 18 years and the government has to have a cutoff. So what the Covenant House specifically does, Dino, is, you know, they work with that like 18 to like 22, 23 year old to try to get them the support they need in a place that's a little bit more conducive to them still being teenagers and figuring life out.
1: That's great. Passing on to the more personal stuff, what is one passion or hobby that you have outside of work, and unless you want to consider the volunteering the, the hobby?
0: I am a runner, so I run. I'll be running a marathon on Sunday, so I'm a runner. But that is that's not even really like a hobby so much as it is time away from my phone. It's time to think. It's a highly measurable activity, so it lets me figure out ways to push myself. How far can I go? How many miles can I get this year? How can I lower my pace, which can be addictive. So I have to be careful about that because your body wears down. It's an interesting thing to try to balance those two things, like wanting to push myself to more miles, but also not wanting to blow out my body and not be able to do stuff. So yeah, it's like that. I would say that is a hobby to some, but it's this is going to sound weird to a lot of fucking people. But my hobbies are getting better and and, and learning more about myself and being self-disciplined. That's my hobby. So I enjoy the discipline of running every day and trying to figure out like, and being like, I get up every day. If it's raining, if it's snowing, I don't give a shit. I get up, I put on my shoes, I run. And I feel like that hardens me in ways. It's like very David Goggins-esque, but it's like, it makes me like kind of get in this mentality that by the time I get to work at eight o'clock, I'm like, I already ran like eight miles today. Like I'm ready to go, you know? And whatever the world threw at me in the morning to try to knock me off my grind or knock me off and be like, ooh, it's cold out. Oh, it rained today. Oh, it's still a little icy. I'm like, nope. Put on your shoes, you're going to go, right? And I think that that's uh, something I'm kind of, it's a hobby. I like looking for the wall, pushing myself, finding my discipline, and just learning about myself.
1: That's great. My favorite question of the podcast is this, what is the business expression or cliche or piece of jargon that drives you crazy?
0: Fake it till you make it. It's just inauthentic because the whole world, I feel like the whole business world is a bunch of people faking it. And that's my, that's my whole shtick is, you know, I'm just super real about like my wins, my losses, and... I am just extremely turned off by the state of how business just operates from a like, dude, just like fake it till you make it. It's like, well, how about you actually do it? You know, because I don't want people faking it until they make it with me. If I buy your service, if I buy your product, I don't want you to be like, well, we knew it was kind of shit, but we rolled it out anyway because we were faking it until we made it. It's like, no, I'd like I'd like a product that worked. You know, imagine you bought your phone and it didn't work right. You'd be like, and they, and they said, oh, well, we faked it till we made it. And it's like, I'm a strong believer in. Um, I don't ever want to be putting out in the world things that I wish didn't come back to me. And if I faked it until I made it, then every other device that I use that I buy, my cameras, my laptops, my microphones, it all would be some fake it till you make it shit, which means it wouldn't work well. So why would I put out in the world something that I don't want to happen to me?
1: It's funny. That's an expression that I hate, too. And I also think like it's disrespectful of the activity of starting something that you may, especially in the service business, right? The the reality is that you need to take 70% of things that you know how to do really well and 30% of things that are things that you want to add to your repertoire. So if you have that balance as a company, right, you have people who are learning new things and that's not faking it until you make it. That's growing.
0: Mm. Ah, That's an interesting take. I like that
1: final question i call it food for the body or food for the soul you can choose you can go you can say both or pick one of the two food for the body is there a recipe or a dish that you really love or a drink or food for the soul it can be music movies arts painting theater
0: tv show, something that inspires you i'm not one of those people that's like inspired by much it's not a word that i use a lot it's not really in my repertoire or there's something that you really love Oh, I love the process of trying to thread the needle between the business and the family. I just really love that. Like, I just I don't know. There's something about that tension that I, I like living in places of tension and trying to be a good dad, knowing that this thing can take away from this and that this thing can take away from that. So like, you know, trying to be there for your kids and stuff, like, means you don't network as, as much. You're not out as many events at night because you read them stories at night or whatever. And you're like, that hurts the business. And then focusing entirely on the business means your kids will be like, yo, who are you? So I like that tension. The other thing I'm finding is, yeah, I think it's tension. Like, I don't know. It's not the right answer to your question, but I'm constantly in a in a state of self-discovery and I'm realizing that I love sitting in places of tension. I just do.
1: That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks for everything you're doing. I'm one of those people you said that have been looking at you for 10, 12 years. I've learned a tremendous amount from your Marketing speeches, you know, at various conferences. And I've learned a lot from you as I'm thinking about how to build my own company in, in what you're doing the past two years. So thank you for being on this.
0: No, you know, I try to be just as honest as I can. You know, I think that's why I think inspiration is hard for me because I've been inspired by people. And then when I actually got to meet them and you sit down with them and you start to realize, you're like, oh my God, half of this is fake it till you make it shit. Like you're not who I thought you were. So I think, and I try not to put people on pedestals. You know, because I think we're all the same. Well, this also gets me in a little bit of trouble, as I said earlier, but I think we're all the same. Like, you know, it's like, you know, some people are really good at running businesses and that's great, but we shouldn't really put them up on some kind of pedestal over people that are really good at whatever else it is that they do. Maybe they're really good at taking care of other people. Maybe they're really good at teaching. Maybe they're great at cooking and making people like feel great when they sit down at their restaurant, but somehow we've taken business and kind of put it up on this pedestal and it's like... I just don't like that narrative, you know? You
1: just summarized my podcast. (laughs) Right there. That's the goal. Right there, what you just said.
0: Well, I'm glad to be a part of it.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you are subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode where I publish them. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits I will play a song by Susan Catania, one of Boston's best singer-songwriters. November was Youth Homelessness Awareness Month. so. If you want to support Will's work on behalf of homeless youth, consider a donation to the Covenant House. You can find it at CovenantHouse.org, spelled C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T-H-O-U-S-E.org. They operate in 34 cities across 6 countries, so you may be able to actually make a local donation to your town. If you want to support Will directly in his effort to raise $30,000 by sleeping outside this month, You can find that specific link and more links about Will on the podcast episode page located on the podcast website al4ep.com spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the at al4edp with the letter D handle. On Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Salvarino on guitar and Jesse Willems on bass. And now, follow from the album All Is Quiet by Susan Cattaneo.
2: found you the world is on its knees